Our reading this morning is from 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. This is God's word. Can I change this? It's okay. Thank you. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for um, loving us. Thank you for being a good father who gives good gifts. Thank you for giving us uh, the good gift of salvation through faith in Christ. And thank you, Father, for every spiritual blessing that we possess in Christ. And uh, thank you for the hope that we have. Thank you for the body of Christ. Thank you for the local expression of the greater body of Christ, the local church the uh, oikos, the household of God. And Lord, what a crazy concept it is that um, all those that are here who profess faith and trust or faith in Christ, who've, who have been regenerated, that we are, we are brothers and sisters in the truest sense of the word, that we've been adopted into the household of God, into your family. And Lord, as we, uh, as we uh, embark on today's passage, I just pray, Holy Spirit, that we would uh, be encouraged uh, by uh, the order that you've set forth in the church and also the, uh, the, uh, uh, the order's perfect, but the, the, the men um, that, um, that fill those roles are imperfect. And I pray that we would just be encouraged today by the order and that we have a perfect shepherd in heaven. We love you, and we pray all these things in the wonderful name of Jesus. And God's people said, amen. amen. Good morning. How's everybody doing? Amazing. Where'd that come from? Nice. I love it. And there. I'm doing amazing, too. It's, uh, God's mercies are new today. Um, in, in spite of whatever might be going on in your life, and um, knowing this last week, actually, for some of you, was um, a hard week. Um, and for a family or two, it might have been the hardest week they've ever had. But we know that we have a God who reigns. We know we have a God who is loving and is good and is sovereign. And he is working his goodwill and purpose out in our lives. Uh, we also know, we, we remember this from Job, that, that God may not take us out of the storm, but he sees us in the storm. That he is uh, not only the God most high, but he is the God most nigh, and he cares about um, every detail of our life. 
Today we are embarking on 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. And we're going to talk about, the, about um, godliness in church leaders, uh, the, the, the godly conduct or behavior of a church leader. But I want to remind you, particularly those that maybe have not been here over the last few weeks, uh, Pastor John reminded us last week of what the purpose of the letter is. And we can find that purpose in chapter 3 of 1 Timothy, verses 14 through 16. And Paul describes the purpose of this letter to the church in Ephesus as the following. I hope to come to you soon, he writes to Timothy. But I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. The church is not the building. The church is not the facility. The church is the oikos, is the household of God. It's us, it's you and I, that we're the church. And and he's writing this letter to us so that we would know how to uh, behave or conduct ourselves um, in this world that we live in. Certainly um, in our Sunday gathering in this building, but but much bigger perspective than that. It's the other uh, seven days a week, other six days of the week, 365 days of the year. And some of the questions that are answered in this book is how are we to behave or conduct ourselves as a church? How are we to live? And in a word, Paul calls this behavior or conduct godliness. And we see that in chapter 3, verse 16. After he, after he gives the purpose statement that he's writing to Timothy so that the church would know how they ought to behave in the household of God, he goes in verse 16, he says, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. Paul says there's a mystery to godliness. There's a mystery to behavior that glorifies God. And the mystery to godliness is not necessarily in asking how, how do we behave? How do we conduct ourselves? Although there, there is discipline and there is work in our conduct and our discipline, but in reality, it's knowing who. It's knowing who. It's going back to the gospel. It's going, that's what godliness is. It's, it's behavior and conduct that is rooted and grows out of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because behavior and conduct outside of that is simple moralism. And, and any human being can learn to conduct themselves or behave well. But godliness is what God wants for us. It also doesn't mean goodliness. It's not adding another zero, as I mentioned a few weeks, weeks ago. Our godliness comes from our relationship to God, not from doing good. And if we have a relationship with God, we're going to want to do what? Do good. We're going to want to do good. The more that we understand the, the, the uh, height and depth and breadth and width of God's love for us, we're going to want to do good. We're going to want to conduct ourselves and behave ourselves in a way that brings God maximum glory and honor. Today, Paul is going to talk about godliness for church leaders. The way that church leaders should conduct themselves is, in the way that church leaders conduct themselves, is the way the church will go. Like shepherd, like sheep. And this, I've been pretty excited, actually, about, I felt bad for Kepi. Like, he did, like, a, a, an amazing, by God's grace, an amazing job last week. But he gets, he, he gets the verse that says that women are to be quiet on Mother's Day. I mean, it's like, ha, you get the short straw, and you did, like, an amazing job of, of um, honoring the Lord. 
and um, exegeting the verse very well. I've been looking forward to this particular verse. I've got a, I've got a, a passion for um, leadership. I've got a passion for empowering um, uh, others into ministry. I've got a passion to see churches planted. Um, but the closer and closer I got to this morning at 8.30, the more freaked out I got. And the reason being is, is that um, these qualifications that Paul lays out, these characteristics for an elder pastor are impossible. And I've, I fail, uh, no false humility here, by the way, I fail on every one of those. Every one of those at some level. So I want to remind myself, and I want to remind you this morning to... Um, The Christian life, standing in the gospel, is about direction, not perfection. That we will never be perfect or completely mature until we're face-to-face with Jesus. In the meantime, we have his word that tells us how to conduct ourselves and behave, and we have his spirit that gives us the ability to do that. But we're all going to fall short. We're all going to fail. And pastors are no different. The pastors are no different. That, that, and this is, I know this is a, um, like a complete understatement, but, but pastors are imperfect shepherds. That, that there is um, hopefully a direction to our life. But I would encourage you to not look for perfection. Um, encourage us towards perfection. But it's kind of freaked me out. I've been an elder um, here in this church for 16 years. <clears throat> Eight years I was bivocational. I mean, I had a job that provided for my family. And I was an elder serving in plurality. And for eight years now, I've been um, on staff. I've been paid for doing this. Which, even when that comes out of my mouth, it's still, it's like, really, God? I mean, you've got a great sense of humor. And, and a great uh, desire to bless me. Um, and um, I love being vocational. Um, I've seen a lot over 16 years. In addition to that, I serve on a team that, um, that oversees Crossway Chapel International. There are six of us men that we call it the servant team, and we kind of lead and direct Crossway Chapel, which is a, um, a network of churches with 17, 18 churches, um, five in northern Colorado. At the same time, I'm on the board of the Western District of a large denomination. So and the, the reason I tell you that is I've seen healthy church families over the years and I've experienced dysfunctional, and I've seen dysfunctional church families. And what I've seen over the years is that truly the health of the church is in direct proportion to the health and function of the church leadership. For better, for worse. And over the years, in these different contexts that I've been able to serve in, I've seen highly competent men. I've seen men with um, many degrees after their name. I've seen men that will be um, teachers and communicators and preachers that I could never aspire to be fail. I've seen them fail, and I've seen the church suffer as a result. You see, in our culture, we esteem um, um, high theological knowledge and degrees, not bad, either one of those, at the expense of character. And what we're going to see today is that what Paul lays out is that the primary qualifications for an elder or pastor is our character qualities. They're not competency. And before we move on to this passage, let me, um, let me see here. Do I want to read anything else? Uh, yep, verse, yeah. why, why have notes if you're not going to read them, right? Uh, 
that's why we're always 15 minutes late. If you're new with us here today, um, there'd be about when I'm five minutes over time, there'd be people walking down the aisles with coffee. Just raise your hand. Two fingers is, is black, one finger is sugar, three is sugar and cream. Verse one in today's passage. Well, let me ask you this first. Have you been part of a church where there's been a split in the leadership or a moral failure? Many times this catches you by surprise. It catches us by surprise because we see these gifted leaders, we see these gifted teachers as our pastors and we wonder how could they go wrong? How could they go wrong? Our pastors, our leaders, our shepherds. So we're going to look today as Paul gives directives to church leaders and the requirement for them to have a trajectory of godliness in their lives. Verse 1, Paul says, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Before we move into this passage, I think it would be beneficial to talk about uh, and understand the offices of an overseer. What's an overseer? And what's the difference between an overseer, a pastor, and an elder? It's a good question, isn't it? Many of us come from different church backgrounds and traditions where there are different offices or roles for the elders and the pastors. In today's passage, Paul refers to the office as overseer. But I want, to, I want to make an illustration right up front. Give you, I want to illustrate right up front that these roles and these offices that Paul is talking about and that, that are talked about all throughout the New Testament are really one and the same. Overseer, elder, pastor, and bishop. Sorry, T.D. Jakes. Are all the same. They're, they're all the same office. In Titus 1, chapter 1, verses 5 and verse 7, Paul uses overseer and elder interchangeably. He says this to Titus, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders. There's order in the church, and what part of that order is appointing elders, plural. In every town as I directed you, for an overseer, verse 7, as God's steward, etc., etc. So he calls elders overseer in the same passage. Paul instructs, um, then today in our culture, pastor is the most common word, isn't it not? A lot of you call me Pastor Dan, or might say Pastor John, or Pastor Pat, Pastor Chris. It's the most common word to describe those who oversee the church. Oddly enough, the word pastor is found one time in the New Testament, in, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. And therefore, it proves that there really is no need for a pastor. Not so fast. Not so fast. The Greek word for pastor is poimen. And that means shepherd. It means shepherd or pastor. Poimen is actually the Greek word for pastor, and it means shepherd. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 2, Peter describes those who lead the church as elders, and he exhorts them to shepherd or pastor or poimen. So the office is elder or overseer, and what our job description is, is that we're to pastor, we're to shepherd, we're to poimen, we're to exercise oversight. Let me read 1 Peter 5, 1 through 2. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock. Elders, shepherd the flock. 
What? Shepherd the flock that is among you. I'm called, Pat's called, Chris is called, John's called to shepherd this flock, not the flock down the street. Shepherd the flock among you, exercising oversight. We're overseers. So an elder, pastor, overseer is the same office in the church. Our work is to pastor or shepherd and care for God's church. I want to say a word about plurality. Some of you have been to the Connect lunches, and and this is um, old news to you. Some of you have been around a while, and maybe you've forgotten. Um, The word for an elder, the work of an elder is not the job for a gifted or charismatic leader. It's not a job for a man at the top of an organizational chart exercising ultimate and final authority. It's not wrong to have a leadership gift. It's not wrong to be charismatic. It's not wrong to be gifted. But what's wrong and what doesn't follow the biblical pattern is when you have one man atop of an ecclesiastical um, org chart who is the boss calling all the final shots. Paul tells Titus to appoint elders, plural, in every town. Peter says, I exhort the elders, plural, among you. And this is referring to men who are called to this office who serve in plurality alongside other called men. Around here we say that a healthy plurality is, includes equal authority, but differing roles. And those roles are formed out of both giftedness, uh, the amount of time that we're freed up, and maybe, maybe stage of life. English historian Lord Acton said this, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts Absolutely. Because of our biblical beliefs in the dreadful realities of sin, our beliefs in the curse, our belief in Satan, our belief in in the depravity of humanity, we should understand well why people in positions of power are easily corrupted, including pastors. In fact, the better we understand the exceeding sinfulness and deceitfulness of sin, the stronger our commitment to plurality will be. The collective leadership of a biblical eldership provides a formal structure for genuine accountability. And I'm going to talk about how that actually works here in just a little bit. Shared brotherly leadership provides needed restraint concerning sins as pride, greed, and playing God. Earl Rodemaker, Chancellor of the Baptist Seminary in America, writes this, Human leaders, even Christian ones, are sinners. And they only accomplish God's will imperfectly. Multiple leaders, therefore, will serve as a check and balance on each other and serve as a safeguard against the very human tendency to play God over other people. You see, when there's a single leader atop a pyramid structure of an organization, the important balancing of another's weaknesses and strengths normally does not occur. Note the strong language that Robert Greenleaf, the author of Servant Leadership, uses to convey his observations. To be a lone chief atop a pyramid is abnormal and it's corrupting. None of us are perfect by ourselves and all of us need the help and correcting influence of close colleagues. I know I need that in my life. When someone is moved to atop a pyramid, that person no longer has colleagues, only subordinates. Even the frankest and bravest of subordinates do not talk with their boss in the same way that they talk with colleagues who are equals 
and normal communication patterns are warped. The pattern we see in scripture is for elders, pastors, slash overseers, slash same office, is for them to have equal authority, operating in diverse roles and giftedness. Equality, not uniformity. So how do we know? How do you know when you walk into a church? How do you know here if there's healthy plurality? How do you know if we're operating in plurality? One of the ways to find out is, is there, is there one man that has the ultimate trump card? Is there one man that can actually um, trumps the other elders' decisions? Buck stops with me. If that's the case, there is not ultimate there's, there's not ultimate in operating plurality. Another um, question to ask is, is there flatline plurality? Or all these guys have equal um, authority, but they're also got equal roles. They're not dividing and conquering. They're not empowering one another to operate in their giftedness. They're trying to, instead of empowering and pushing the other guy ahead, they're trying to protect their own turf. At WCC, you've got four pastor elders. You got Pastor John, you got Pastor Pat, you got Pastor Chris. Actually, it's, I'm going to say it a different way. A gal at the last service says, I'm going to start calling you Point Main Dan. So we got Point Main John, we got Point Main Pat, we got Point Main Chris. And yes, we're, we're all got some kind of like a Asian heritage, Point Main. <laughs> you see? I think I saw that on the menu the other day, actually, Point Main. We have varying biblical backgrounds. A couple of us are paid full-time. Chris is full-time. I'm full-time. Pat is half-time, meaning the church pays. And John is a tent maker. John works for a technology company, uh, a lot of hours. And him and his wife, Kelly, devote a ton of hours here to this church. So pastor elder has nothing to do with being paid I'm freed up in a different way than John might be freed up. But John and I, for example, have equal authority. Not uniformity, but equal authority. We serve in unity with a common mission, vision, and strategy for accomplishing Christ's mission. And I want to just tell you this. None of us has ultimate authority. None of us does. Um, these guys, these men are not yes men. But it doesn't mean that the plurality isn't led. I lead the plurality as the plurality leads the church. That's key because it's, it's when, I, when I lead it, it doesn't, I'm, not, I'm not their authority. I'm not their boss. The buck doesn't stop with me. I, bring, I might bring vision. I might bring alignment to continually ask the question, are our ministries aligned? Are we all paddling in the same direction, accomplishing the same mission, operating with the same strategy? And I, want to just, I want to just give you an example of this. I'm not going to actually men, mention the, um, the, the, uh, the instance because it would really um, illuminate uh, my character. Um, so there was a time, and there's been, I could probably come up with six or seven times over the last few years, but there was a time six months ago where I had a really clear idea of something we should do. It was a really good idea. Inspired. Probably not. 
but I thought it was a good idea. I mean, I prayed about it. I thought about it. I, um, you know, and, and I came to these guys and said, hey, this is, I think this is what we should do, actually. And I think we ought to not do this because it interferes with this. All three of them prayed about it for two seconds. No, they prayed about it for <laughs> o- overnight, and, um, and all three of them disagreed with me. All three of them disagreed with me. I don't, know if you, I don't know if it's even coming to mind. Is it coming to mind? Do you know? Yeah. Pat's going, yeah, you idiot hardy. Um, and here's, here's, what I, here's what I did. Uh, I went home, I kicked the dog, and then I, I no, we don't have a dog, so I didn't kick him. Um, but where he's buried, I kicked the dirt. Um, <laughs> he is dead. Not because I kicked him, he was already dead. I went home, and um, I'm going, Lord, this is really a good idea. But these guys, are, these guys are disagreeing with me on it. And here's the conclusion I came to, by God's grace. John, Pat, and Chris have God's spirit in them. They love this church and love Jesus every bit as much as I do. So I can trust that if three of the men are seeing something a certain direction and I'm seeing it another, I'm wrong. I'm wrong. And so, um, so, and we've done that different directions. All these guys have done the same thing at different times. You would never know it. Because it's not like an, I'm wrong and you guys are right. It's that, you know, I just trust that you guys are right. You know, and then, and then the, the thing that I was trying to prevent when it, when it came true, I went back to them, I told, I, I told you so. No, I never did that. They were actually right. They were right then, and they were right with the result. Um, actually. So I wanted to just give you an illustration of, of what um, leading a plurality looks like and what serving a plurality looks like. Um, honestly, we do not move forward on any decision if there is a dissenting pastor. We don't. You go, how does that work? Somebody's got to be the Trump. God always works it out. And I've seen that happen for 16 years. And it's not because I'm the easiest guy to get along with. I heard that. <laughs> that was your out loud voice. Back to verse one. Paul writes, he says, the, Paul writes, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Paul says this is true. This is a trustworthy statement. As crazy as it sounds, that if you aspire for this, to this office, it's a good thing. And aspire means to reach out after it. It actually means to go after it. It's an action of moving towards the office that is motivated by an inward desire to be an overseer of God's people. The aspiration of this office is a desire for a noble task or literally a good work. Not, a, not an easy work, but a good work. So if one who aspires to this office, desiring the good work, if one desires and aspires, what are the qualifications for this job? There's got to be qualifications. Verse 2, therefore, an overseer must be. Whenever we see therefore in a passage, we've got to ask the question what? What is the therefore? Therefore. Because of this noble calling to shepherd God's flock, there are specific qualifications for leaders in the church. Choosing leaders is not to be a popularity contest. They're not to be picked randomly. They don't need to be a natural leader. 
In fact, even aspiring to the office of elder does not necessarily qualify a man. Aspiring is necessary, but it doesn't guarantee that a man is qualified. The characteristics or qualifications that we're going to see in these next six verses are not exhaustive, but they represent the bare minimum for elders if we were to grace both the church and the world around us. And I want to remind you and I want to remind me that just like every walk, um, it's about direction, um, not perfection. Paul starts with a blanket requirement. Can I say this too? That um, we, we serve in plurality. Um, I do with, with the other pastors. And, um, but it, there's a sense that we're in plurality with you all as well. Um, we're, we're not the clergy. Um, you notice there's not like a, we, have a, we have a platform just so you can see us, but we're not up here because we're hired in some way. And if, and if you see that there is not a trajectory or a direction of growing in these qualifications in your current pastors, you need to love us and let us know. Well, let them know. Don't let me know. My wife will let me know. No, let us know. We need to know. Paul starts in verse 2 with a blanket requirement, the elder's reputation. Paul begins with a general charge as to the elder's reputation that an overseer must be above reproach, which means blameless. He must not be under any scandal. I think this should actually be a qualification for a politician. Must not be under any scandal. I mean, if I was running for office, first of all, I'd never make it to office, but I was running for office and I had skeletons in my closet, I would just tell them all up ahead of time. Why not? I want them to get um, me, not somebody they think they're electing. So this blamelessness, this being above reproach, refers to observable conduct, that we can observe these elders. Is he a man who adorns the gospel, one who represents Christ well? Does the trajectory of his life reflect an obvious desire and direction of godliness? Does he conduct himself and behave himself in a way that brings glory to the Father? Blamelessness does not mean sinless. There's only one who walked the earth who was sinless, and that's the good shepherd. The rest of the qualifications describe this blameless life. The first one is husband of one wife. It literally means one wife man. It means faithful to one wife. I keep getting texts. Usually I turn this thing off. Uh, Sorry. Can I just take a minute and read it? No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) It was just a Rockies update. They're not playing yet. Stick to your notes. Husband of one wife. Here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that an elder, an overseer, pastor, um, how, do I want, how do I say this? Uh, it's okay if he was married before and divorced. It's okay that he's widowed. It's okay that he's a single man. What it means is that as he aspires for the office or as he um, takes hold of the office and occupies the office is that he's a one-woman man. He's a one-woman man. That he, he is fulfilling his wedding vows. 
Next is sober-minded, which means temperate, alert, clear-headed, watchful. It means that he's watching his own life. He's watching the life of others, of looking for wayward, hurting sheep. And when we get together on, on Wednesday mornings for our pastor board meeting, the very first thing we do, the very first two things we do, actually, is that we say, how are you doing? Chris, Pat, Dan, when John's with us, how are we doing? We did this yesterday morning. How are we doing? How are you doing with the Lord? How are you doing? How is your primary relationship with your wife? How are things in the home? Is there any sin in your life that needs to be confessed? And then right after that, you're getting a glimpse into, the, into our office. Right after that, we actually, we talk about you behind your back. We talk about you because we love you. And we ask this question, are there any sheep that are hurting, broken, wayward, that we need to love on, that we need to feed that we need to care for. Then after that, we hit our knees. And we pray for each other. And we pray for you all. And, I'm sure, and there's a whole list of business that happens after that. And there's many times, yesterday morning was one of them. We met for three hours, 7.30 to 10.15, two hours and 45 minutes. We didn't get to any business. But that's okay. Because our primary responsibility is to shepherd the flock. In the shepherd of the and to be watchful of our own lives and to be watchful of the enemy because the enemy we know is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for sheep, including us, we're sheep, to devour. And if we're not watching our own lives first, we're not going to be shepherds that honor the Lord. Next is self-controlled, which means prudent, curbing desires and impulses. Understanding that our actions affect many others. A self-controlled person doesn't act first and then ask questions later. They seek counsel. They count the cost and they evaluate risk. Respectable. It's the same word that was used to describe women's apparel in chapter 2, verse 9. It means, it means orderly. It means that pastors are put first things first. That they're not finding their identity in being a pastor but their identity is in Christ, first things first. And then after that, they're, they're a husband of one wife, a father of three kids in my case, grandfather of four and a half kids. Oops, sorry. They're hospitable. They're given to hospitality. They're generous to guests. This literally means love of strangers, and it's a virtue for all Christians. It's a virtue for all of the God of people, all the people of God. Paul told the Roman church to contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. And seek to show means literally to pursue or to chase. And sometimes it means strenuous pursuit. Christians, especially church leaders, are not simply to wait for opportunities for hospitality. We're to go after it. Our homes are to be open. We're to pursue others. An elder must be a joyous host, opening his home and inviting people to his table. This is the very heart of God. God is a, God is a, a welcoming, hospitable God. He welcomed us and beckoned us, invited us into his forever home. An elder is able to teach. This is the one requirement in the, in the list that is not necessarily required for all believers. 
In fact, it's the only skill, if you will, that's required for uh, an elder. There's no other skills on this list. Everything else is character. Not, not a drunkard. It doesn't say don't drink. It says don't be drunk. Don't be controlled by alcohol. Just the opposite. Be controlled by the Spirit, as Paul says in Ephesians. Not violent, but gentle. Not quarrelsome. The Greek translated nonviolent is literally not a giver of blows. And it, and it corresponds to quarrelsome. And it's not just physical blows, but it's verbal blows. And this is the one that rips my heart out, actually. If there's one that disqualifies me, it's this one. It's something that I struggle with on a regular basis, particularly with my bride. She knows that. I confess that to you. I confess it to my pastors. And um, Nancy would tell me there's a trajectory, but I don't always see it. So if there's any way you pray for me, you can pray this one for me. That I'd not be violent with my tongue, that I'd be gentle. It's a fruit of the Spirit. It's something that God wants to produce in me. He wants to produce it in you. Next is not a lover of money. It literally means not greedy for filthy lucre. L-U-C-R-E. I just love saying that. Don't be greedy for filthy lucre, you... Whatever the next word is, I don't know. (laughs) Swashbuckling pirate. Money, specifically an elder's attitude towards it, plays a big role in qualifications. An elder cannot have a love for money. An elder cannot be greedy for gain. In, in, in Nigeria, they, they, they actually struggle with this, and I understand it, because being a pastor is a pathway to providing for your family. And may that never be so in a developed country. Being a pastor should never be a pathway to providing for your family. It should be a calling. And then some are blessed by being paid. But we don't get into it for the money. Verses four and five. Now, Paul, Paul shines a spotlight on the pastor's home, the proverbial fishbowl. He says that, that an elder must manage his household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if a man can't manage his own household, how will he care for his church? And that's not an issue wasn't an issue for Nancy and I because we had perfect children. <laughs> perfect grandkids. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we had amazing kids. Still do. Paul isn't saying that the pastor's home and children need to be perfect. Even though many congregations actually put that burden on their pastors. Some of you are pastor's kids and you live through that burden. The word manage, must manage his own household well. The word manage indicates that there are struggles in the family. You don't manage something that there's no struggles. Good leadership is not determined in the absence of difficulty, but in the prudent discipline in handling of problems when difficulties come. Here's the question in this verse. Is he, the elder pastor, managing his household with dignity? Dignity means this. It means management that entitles to reverence. Dignity means management that entitles to reverence. The house is managed in such a way that the children don't want to obey. 
that they want to submit. Sometimes we need to lock them in the room. But an ideal situation is that we are, we're standing in the gospel and we're encouraging them to obey us as we're obeying Christ. We're encouraging them to obey and submit to us because of our, our kindness and our love and our consistency in our discipline. Verse six, he must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. Literally, puffed means thinking too highly of himself. You might have heard of young man syndrome before. I had it. I've never seen a young man that hasn't gone through it. And it's when they think they can do more than they really should be elevated to do. They think that they're the next um, savior of the world and they've got all the answers. And in the church, if, if we do anything, we elevate men to the position of elder and pastor too soon. We're, we're zealous to, to bring forth um, gifted leaders while we ignore their character. And can I just say this right now? That in this church, what God is doing right now, and some of you see it, some of you may not see it, but I want you all to see it, is that God is bringing in some young families that are being mentored by some of you older families. And many of these men are being prepared by the Spirit of God and through this ministry to be future pastors and elders in this church and in churches to be planted. It's, it's, a, it's, a, work, it's a work of God. And I'm so, uh, so jazzed to see it. Humility seasoned by experience is an indispensable qualification for eldership. And I want to just give you a, just a really quick glimpse into what we do. We have four pastors here right now. I can see two additional pastors in 2017. And my guess is, is that one would be under 30 and the other would be under 35. Initials are, no, just kidding. Uh, but they're, they're, they're young men that the Lord is, is raising up. And um, we, we've kind of had a loose pastor and training process in the past. You know, when, when John came on and Chris came on, when I came on before that, you know, we just kind of like looked at him and go, wow, you aspire to it, you're gifted, we know you, you know us, you want to shepherd the church, come on board. It's beautiful. Uh, but now, as, particularly as we're seeing more younger men coming in, we feel like we need to have a more intentional process for bringing them on. So stay tuned. We're, we're working on that this summer, and um, we'll see how the Lord leads us. In addition to that, we have something called a Pastors Leadership Institute. It's, it's kind of a, uh, an in-house seminary. Seminary is probably too strong of a word, but it's a two to two and a half year uh, process or program. We've had three guys graduate from it. Jake Pence has graduated from it, uh, Jeremy Sornan, and uh, Josh Timgen. They, about, a, about a year ago, they graduated. And right now, we have a class going with four guys in it. It's um, Dan Konzik. It's Bevan Rigg, it's Stephen McKenzie, and it's Joshua Trigstad. And I would say that, um, you can ask them, by the way, but I would say 70% of this two, two and a half year um, uh, class program is character. We read a ton of theology. They memorize a ton of scripture. I got the finals sitting up on my desk up there. I hate grading finals. I need to get you to do that, John. You do such a better job than me. You know it by head. I've got to like, look up all the answers that I'm testing them on. But it's, it's character. I want to know. They've, they've got to be able to refute unsound doctrine. They've got to be able to teach. But I could care less if they can make an argument for sound doctrine and they can teach it if they live like the world. 
So we observe their marriages. We ask hard questions. And God is doing a neat work. So if you would be praying for these unknown pastors that I'm so excited to see the Lord bringing on. Finally, in verse 7, an elder must be well thought of by outsiders. And well thought of literally means being a beautiful witness. He must have a beautiful witness with outsiders. You see, Paul is concerned about the behavior and conduct of the church because of our witness, because of our mission. Certainly he cares about it because it glorifies God, but there is nothing that hampers our word, the church's witness more than a church divided by elders that are falling into morality. I serve on this board in the Western District in California. Three churches in the last 12 months had a pastor fall because of adultery. There's only 85 churches in this Western District and three of them. And as I look back at it, every one of them were, uh, were Moses models, siloed pastors, where nobody knew them. They were operating by themselves. And you see, when that happens, and I'm capable of it, the other pastors are capable of that. It's not that we're above that, but we've got to structure ourselves in such a way where there's accountability, where there's transparency, where there's a confession of sin. And when we do that, and the church operates in unity and in plurality, it smells good to outsiders. And they want to know something about this, this organization that is so otherly, so otherly worldly, if I can say that. So it has everything to do. The elder must be thought of well by outsiders. You know, the best thing we can do as I close off here, the best way that we can shepherd this body is to remind you of God's love for you and encourage you to follow us as we follow the good shepherd. When you see us veering away, when you see us not following the good shepherd, it's time to leave this church. We're not perfect, but I can tell you, knowing Pat and John and Chris, is again, we got one heart's desire, and that's to honor and glorify God in everything we do and say. And we fall short of that a lot. As I invite the worship team up, I want to close with this verse from John chapter 10, verses 27 through 30. This is Jesus. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Think about that. Know. It's rooted from a word that is it's the strongest word that they could come up with in Greek for intimacy. That my sheep hear my voice and I know them. It's an intimate kind of know. He knows us. He, he knows our thoughts before we think them. He knows our words before we say them. And they follow me. Sheep follow Jesus. We want to obey and, and conduct ourselves in a way that brings him glory and honor because he knows us. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who gave them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father 
am one. Let's pray. Father, what a, an amazing truth that there is nothing that can snatch us from your hands. Nobody or nothing. Not even our own sin. That if we, that if we have been redeemed, if we've been regenerated, if you have uh, called us into your sheepfold, there is nothing that we can do that would, that would entail you um, booting us out of the sheep pen. And I thank you that you are a good shepherd. That you lead us to green pastures. And I thank you that you know us. That when we sin, you know we're going to sin. And I thank you that for the Holy Spirit that indwells us. That gives us the power to conduct ourselves and behave ourselves in a manner worthy of our calling. We love you. We thank you that you loved us first. And God's people said.